Welcome to Embargoed, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming, and I'm here with my friend, co-host, and colleague, Mr. Tim O'Toole in D.C. What's up, Tim? What's going on, Brian? More of the same. Yes, things here in Maryland slash the tower room at Baker Library are great. Uh, or as great as they can be under the current circumstances. So um, good to see you virtually via Zoom. Uh, you as, as we, well, especially on a Friday afternoon. On a Friday afternoon. It's been a long, it's been a long week for both of us. Uh, and we're recording this on Friday, April 24th. Uh, and it is uh, it is five o'clock somewhere, though it's it's not quite five o'clock in Washington D.C. This is uh, all that stands between us and happy hours. So. But by the time this is over, it will be. So that's that's exciting for both of us. Um, so welcome to the latest episode. Um, as usual, the normal disclaimer: we're not here giving legal advice. Uh, we're not sharing any confidential information. Um, we thank everyone who uh, responded to the FAQ podcast that we put up a couple weeks ago. Um, I think that was uh, that was a fun one to do. We're back to sort of the normal format this time. Um, before we get started, I think the only the only thing I'll say is, uh, as always, please if you if you like the podcast and uh, you're checking it out, please subscribe, give us a rating, hopefully a five star rating. Uh, you can find us Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Overcast, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and I would also add, as a as a little teaser for next time, um, in two weeks we're planning to do a a full China related episode. Uh, so we're excited about that. We've already got a lot of great ideas of what we're going to cover there. And I think I think it is going to feature the very first. Uh, guest in embargoed history so he's a tough he's a tough person to line up he's, he's in high demand but but i think we're going to be able to secure him to join us so um we will hopefully have that uh in two weeks so that's uh, a little tease for you um, well, let's keep let's let's keep that guest identity secret yes. at least for now because we don't want to overpromise. <laughs> That's right. He also might stand us up on the, at the last minute. We might have to apply some pressure to get him to come on. But in any event, uh, so two weeks, China, all China all the time on uh, the next episode. Uh, and so I think with that, we're ready to, to get going here. We're going we're gonna to run through, we're kind of back to the normal format. We're going to run through uh, several topics uh, in a little more detail. We're going to start with a few COVID-related topics and then pivot to a few unrelated uh, sanctions topics, and then we're gonna do the lightning round, uh, and, um, and that'll, be, that'll be all she wrote for today. So without further ado, let, let me get us started with item really 1A. This is really 1A and 1B. These are sort of two OFAC-related items that we're gonna start with, um, and for this, I wanna make sure that I pull this up so I, I have it in front of me. So uh, we're recording, as I said, on Friday, April 24, Earlier this week on Monday, <clears throat> OFAC issued uh, on the website on their website uh, a little uh, notice, uh, and anybody who gets the OFAC uh, is on the OFAC mailing list saw this, no doubt. Uh, and it was titled "OFAC Encourages Persons to Communicate OFAC Compliance Concerns Related to COVID-19." So that's the headline, and then they proceed to sort of identify uh, a number of different. Uh, situations where it may be necessary for folks to be reaching out to them, whether it be 
delays, potential delays or trouble in filing blocking and reject reports within uh, the, the time period allotted under the regs, responding to administrative subpoenas, uh, things of that sort. And then they have a whole bunch of um, contact info listed. Hopefully, we would hope um, that most folks out there have been proactive about these types of things. I know that we have been talking to folks at the agencies on behalf of our clients pretty frequently in the last month due to any of these any of these types of reasons, disruptions and, and other things that are just making it challenging for us all to uh, sort of exist and operate these days. But the, the thing we wanna focus on is, is the last paragraph of this little very short notice that OFAC included because I think this is, this is notable. So I'm gonna read this verbatim and then I'm gonna turn it over to Tim for his thoughts on this. So the, the last paragraph of this uh, reads, OFAC understands that the COVID-19 pandemic can cause technical and resource challenges for organizations. As OFAC has articulated in both its economic sanctions enforcement guidelines and its framework, framework for compliance commitments, the agency supports a risk-based approach to sanctions compliance. Accordingly, if a business facing technical and resource challenges caused by the COVID-19 pandemic chooses as part of its risk-based approach to sanctions compliance to account for such challenges by temporarily reallocating sanctions compliance resources consistent with that approach, OFAC will evaluate this as a factor in determining the appropriate administrative response to an apparent violation that occurs during this period. OFAC will address these issues on a case-by-case -case basis. So Tim, Professor O'Toole, I'm turning this over to you. Please translate OFACES into English and explain to uh, our listeners what that means. First, I, I liked, Brian, how you paused on the OFAC understands. Because really, if I were to, to use one word to describe OFAC, it would be understanding. Um, and I think that's, that's universal sentiment on that. But I, I, so, so let's translate this a little bit. I mean, let's start out with the, this is not a pass to essentially shut down your compliance program during the COVID pandemic. So, so it's not a pass. If you, if you, and we'll talk about an enforcement action later on today where um, a company got in big trouble because their compliance program was pretty woefully inadequate. So, so that's, that's gonna, that, that is still, the rule that you've got to have a risk-based compliance program, but, but, and, and I, I, you know, was making fun of them a little bit, but the, the, the fact is that um, OFAC expressing that it is, that it understands that sometimes in a risk-based approach that there will be bigger risks than compliance um, is a big deal. And, and I also think that it's pretty smart of OFAC because I, I do think that the, the, uh, the crisis has created strains and stresses on compliance programs for all the reasons that we talked about in prior episodes that um, have created have created a lot of anxiety within co compliance programs about what they can and can't do. And I think this is a message, a signal from OFAC that it understands what's happening and that it is sympathetic to that. Not too sympathetic. I, you know, there was a there was an article on this. Um, in the Wall Street Journal, and and um, you know there was a discussion by some um, Yahoo about how this was a this was a, a a positive approach by OFAC by providing some guidance, and there was a caution from somebody uh, in the article as well that this is not a hall pass, this is not like a get a free jail card, and I completely agree with that, but but I, I still think it's important because 
if, if OFAC is out there saying that they understand, I think it will make companies' compliance programs relax some, which they need to right now, but not not go out of control and just basically go out to lunch. Yeah, I think so. For the in, the inside joke there is that Tim was the Yahoo that was quoted in the Wall Street Journal article. Um, the so a couple of observations. Um, this is obviously something we talked about on prior episodes where. Uh, I think two episodes ago where we first tackled the sort of what are the practical challenges to dealing with compliance in these times. And, and this is exactly what we were saying is that, you know, this, there's feeling sort of trapped or, uh, you know, restricted uh, by the circumstances that everybody's dealing with now is just not the way, right way to think of it. It has to be thought of holistically as part of the risk-based approach. If there are gonna be modifications made, again, I'll reiterate this, we said this before, but um, you know that should be documented, that should be thoughtful, that should be done in a way that is, uh, again, if down the road people come and ask questions, if OFAC comes and ask questions, that there will be uh, a record of that and hopefully it'll be clear that this was all done uh, after due consideration and in light of, again, all of the, all of the relevant risk factors. Uh, so that certainly is something we would encourage. I would also note that I saw, I think yesterday or the day before, there were some officials from DOJ and SEC who essentially said the exact same thing with respect to FCPA compliance, that you know, this, isn't a pa this isn't a hall pass, However, we understand these are complicated times. We're all in compliance is, is much more difficult when it's all being done remotely and there are resources being surged to deal with bigger immediate issues uh, that have to be dealt with by companies at the moment. And please keep the lines of communication open and talk to us if you're having trouble uh, you know, complying or you're fearful that by shifting or reallocating resources, you're potentially going to be opening yourselves up to missing something, or maybe you're you're only catching a red flag three months from now, as opposed to you know a week or a day from now, as you might you know, under normal times, right? Those types of things. So these are things that the regulators and enforcers always say, which is come talk to us. That's that's been said since the beginning of time, but. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think, again, the fact that they're putting this out there so explicitly, at least as a symbolic uh, gesture and a, a kind of cue to the compliance community, that is meaningful. And so I think that's really the big thing that we wanted to, to sort of hit on here. Um, yeah. and, and I think in that vein, so to, to sort of pivot to 1B of this issue, and I'll turn it to Tim to introduce this, OFAC made kind of a, did sort of a similar thing on another topic that we've talked about recently, which is the sort of humanitarian assistance, um, sort of ex exceptions and exemptions that exist and general licenses that exist out there to, to provide humanitarian assistance in many countries that are at the moment both um, ravaged by both sanctions and COVID-19. So I'll turn that to Tim to introduce that. Yeah, I mean, this is another kind of recurring um, theme in terms of the podcast. Uh, especially after COVID hit, is that uh, you know that it has created huge challenges in sanctioned countries. Uh, even though the 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 actual delivery of humanitarian items are not subject to sanctions, the sanctions themselves have deterred that, have interfered with that. There have been plenty of charges out and around the world uh, from the Pope, and from the UN, and from various people in the sanctioned countries, and from their allies. 
uh, all talking about uh, the way that US, that U.S. sanctions are interfering with the provision of humanitarian assistance. And it's clear that uh, the U.S. and OFAC have been sensitive to that. And I think that is the motivation behind this April 16th um, fact sheet on the provision of humanitarian assistance uh, to and trade to combat COVID-19. Basically what the document does, and, and it's, it's a, again, OFAC being kind of sensitive to what's going on in the world, is it, it lays out all of the pre-existing uh, ways in which humanitarian trade is permitted despite sanction. And it does sanctions, and it does it on a country by country basis, uh, along with all of the different uh, general licenses, that is the generalized permissions that OFAC has in each country sanctioned program to allow for the provision of humanitarian goods and services. It actually goes through and talks uh, on, a, on a pretty much item by item basis. I mean, the Iranian discussion is, it reflects this, but it talks about how most medicine and medical devices, including certain per personal protective equipment and other items used for COVID-19 related treatments, such as gowns, eye shields and goggles, surgical gloves, face shields, respirators and masks, uh, and including N95, N99, N100 masks. I mean, I think you can get the gist of this. They talk about how all of these goods are uh, potentially within uh, pre-existing humanitarian exceptions to the to the sanctions on Iran, gives some guidance about what other ones might not be within that, uh, you know, more advanced uh, items that might not be within the exceptions, but that OFAC would have a favorable licensing licensing policy depending upon the circumstances. So, so it really is kind of a detailed how-to in terms of exporting. Uh, humanitarian, particularly medic medical goods, but also food and, and agricultural commodities into sanctioned countries, um, nothing new. So it was all things that had already been created, already in existence. Yeah, interestingly, I think the, so two things, interestingly, I think it basically, the country, the country by country pertains solely to the sort of most heavily sanctioned countries in the world, right? It's sort of Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea, Russia, Syria. Those are, I think, the six countries that are referenced in the fact sheet. And as you said, nothing new. It's just an interesting kind of compendium of information. Uh, the relevant FAQs are referenced and linked to all of the general licenses. Like it's all, it's all just nice, neatly packaged up in one place. And as again, as kind of a symbolic gesture and as maybe a useful, you know, piece of, uh, you know, paper that could be forwarded to a bank or an insurer or a, a freight forwarder or somebody who was potentially being resistant in the in the attempts to get humanitarian goods to one of these countries it, it could be a useful uh, tool in, in that regard I have I have to say one thing that occurred to me and this is not the only time this has occurred to me and it's not solely related to OFAC is I I wonder whether um, this is a product of the of the lockdown and the shutdown and nobody has anything to do. So they're just putting together these compendiums and these fact sheets because they're at home and they can do these types of projects now. Uh, that's perhaps a, a, a little too cynical a view of it all, but um, it, 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 is, it is kind of odd that there's been a, just a ton of these that have come out all across the board in the last couple of weeks. To put this in law firm speak, it appears that OFAC is catching up on its GOB. Yeah. Uh, at this point, uh, because it, 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 some of the other work has has lightened up. I, I agree with that. And I also think 
to, to me, it's, it's kind of odd because although I think the public was the audience for the announcement that, that, that OFAC had done this and that there are humanitarian channels, and I saw it in a press release about how the U.S. is leading the world in providing humanitarian aid in the time of crisis and kind of accompanied this, I, I do think this was mostly for the lawyers. I don't think that anybody who's not a sanctions lawyer could read that fact sheet and really understand what the hell is going on. I mean, they have a, you know, a compendium of like 27 general licenses that apply to the Iran program. And most people, I think most normal people would look at that and say, you lost me a general license. And so, so I, I do think it's kind of for the, the lawyers um, who do this stuff to be able to kind of quickly get answers to clients and quick, and, and then also, to, to, to be able to write kind of confident opinions that this is something that OFAC has, has interpreted to apply to these particular items um, in terms of humanitarian. Yeah, and, and again, as we've talked about in the past, to the extent that there are sort of practical obstacles to the, the free flow of humanitarian trade right now, or really during, even during normal times, in part because banks and insurers and logistics providers and freight forwarders and, you know, et cetera, are so, uh, are so sort of risk averse when it comes to this, any trade with these types of countries uh, that are so heavily uh, restricted under OFAC and other rules and regimes. Again, this is sort of a, a bit of a signal or a, a you know, um, I think to that, community as well that in their compliance folks hopefully that that this is something that is being um taken seriously and, and is not just going to be um you know sort of uh perhaps the normal uh sort of stringent uh rules that would apply to your vetting and your due diligence and all the rest of it uh or you may not be willing to take any you know iran business or any Syrian business under consideration under normal times with something like this kind of at the ready that's again trying to be I think as a symbolic matter something that's signaling you no know, the US government is serious that they want to permit this type of trade this type of uh, authorized trade it, maybe that moves the needle a little bit for some people it's hard to say but I, I think that that's sort of the other piece of this. Yeah, no, I mean, I I was joking a little bit before, but it is nice that OFAC seems to have some sort of finger on the pulse response to what's going on in the real world and is responding relatively quickly to that. And I also was joking about the, the Wall Street Journal articles on this, but I, I thought that Menchie Sun did a really good job in the, the, the series of articles about kind of what the compliance challenges were and what it would take and what should be done in order to for, for the regulators to respond to them. And so, you know, this is good to see. I'm not sure how big a deal it is in the great scheme of things, but I think it's definitely more helpful than not. Yeah. And for people like us, it's a handy reference tool to have it all in one place, right? I mean, I, I think it's, I've already looked at it several times since it came out, just because it's nice to have all the the rules and the FAQs and the general licenses all in one document. So yeah, that's, that's why I do think it's, I mean, to me, it's most helpful for lawyers because I get these questions all the time and this just makes it easier to answer them. You can answer them more quickly because it's all in one place. And, right. you know, we, we had that of our own because we had already written memos on a lot of this stuff, but this also makes it 
uh, easy to be more authoritative because you you essentially attach that memo, memo to your memo and right. say here's here's what OFAC says about it. And so while you know people some people take us more seriously than others, everybody is going to take OFAC seriously on this. And right. so so it's helpful. Yeah. Okay. So with that, let's that's uh, let's leave sort of OFAC's uh, you know at home uh, catching up on on uh, old old uh, email requests from their supervisors work and put that aside for the moment. Um, and let's move on to the next item, which is in a, a bit of an update on something we talked about just the last time relating to the export restrictions uh, that have been placed on personal protective equipment uh, through a temporary rule issued by FEMA. And so the news here is when we last recorded, this was two weeks ago, and at the time we had the initial rule that was issued via federal register notice. And we had some sort of interim guidance that had come out from uh, Customs and Border Protection uh, the following week. Now what we've gotten just a couple of days ago on uh, April 21 was another federal register notice that does something important, which is it sort of codifies and spells out in more detail exemptions to the temporary final rule. And this is something that we talked about the last time. Uh, I, I think there's a couple of, we, I won't sort of read through all of them. There's 10, there's 10 new exemptions that were included in this uh, Federal Register notice that was published on April 21 uh, relating to uh, the PPE, the covered PPE materials that would be subject to these export restrictions um, under the, pursuant to the Defense Production Act and, and the, the rule that's been issued by FEMA. Uh, the, I think the, the big takeaways, and this kind of builds on what we talked about last time, was um, you know, the, non the fact that this is commercial focused, right? That the rule is meant to uh, really police and uh, detain uh, commercial shipments of these materials that are going out of the United States. So the exemptions uh, are really meant to clearly define a number of areas and a number of instances where, you know, there is no com real true commercial purpose to the shipment. And some of them deal with, and, and, a and again, some of these build on the exclusions that were included in the CBP memo from a couple of weeks ago. Some of these are, are sort of new. Um, and so would encourage everybody to go the full list of exemptions that this is something that applies to your company. Uh, but at the end of the day, the sort of non-commercial aspect has now been kind of codified in these exemptions, and, and sort of two that I'll two that I'll reference uh, quickly that I think are significant. One is relating to what we were just talking about, which is humanitarian assistance. So there's an exemption for donations being made by nonprofits and NGOs to either foreign charitable organizations or foreign governments, and those are not for not to be resold by those entities, but just for use in those countries, essentially. That's one. And then another is intra-company transfers from U.S. domestic facilities to their foreign facilities for use by their workers in those foreign countries. And, and the, the last thing I'll mention, which is sort of a procedural issue, and I think we talked about this the last time, now it's been uh, spelled out in detail as a requirement under the new rules is this idea of a, having to provide a letter of attestation if you're going to claim certain exemptions. So the, the charitable donation 
exemption and the intracompany transfer exemption that I just mentioned, those two are two that require a letter of attestation, which has to be submitted uh, via CVP's document imaging system and has to include certain information to verify that you are uh, able to claim the exemption that you're trying to export under. So again, for, for people that are uh, where this is impacting you and your business or your organization, if you're a charitable organization, I would encourage you to, to just take a close look to FEMA's credit, to CBP's credit. They've been very good about evolving the guidance on this and developing these exemptions pretty quickly. I, I we have, We've published uh, a little piece on this the other day and alert for our clients. And, you know, I think rightfully so, we gave credit to those organizations for re reacting swiftly to bring some clarity to an area where, quite frankly, when the initial rule was published, there was, there was not much. And it looked like this could be a very broad rule that was going to affect a lot of different shipments and potentially detrimentally. And to their credit, they uh, acted quickly and have now clarified some of that. So, so that's really all I have to say about that. And, and I'll throw it to Tim for some thoughts as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a s similar story to, to item 1A and 1B, where we talked about this for a while. We talked about this for, uh, you know, about the unusual situation in which there are restrictions on the export of uh, personal protective equipment. Normally, that is one of the least restricted commodities. Other countries started to restrict it as they started to uh, suffer from the pandemic. The U.S., uh, as we talked about earlier, adopted these emergency measures to restrict the export of PPE. And as you noted, Brian, it, the the progression was pretty logical and pretty fast. So first, you know, with this brand new set of rules and a brand new agency that had been authorized to implement them, FEMA and CBP, which are not normally in the export business. The first question was, okay, so what does this cover? What is restricted to domestic use? That was answered relatively quickly in terms of kind of what, what they were going after. Then the, 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 is there, are there exceptions? Yes, and those have been developed pretty quickly over the last three weeks and, and really kind of firmed up in terms of what they are. And then the third question that pops up is, well, what's the process for invoking the exemptions? And as you pointed out, Brian, at first, nobody had any flippant idea what the process was. It was just like, I, I know that I have an exemption. How do I get it? And now pretty quickly, it's evolved that you, 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 will, that you will have to declare the exemption through one of these certificate of attestations, at least for some of the exemptions and that they apply differently, that there'll be a joint uh, implementation by both FEMA and uh, CBP, where CBP holds the goods and then FEMA lets them go. And so over the course of you know, less than a month, the US has implemented a new law that it doesn't, didn't normally have. It charged two agencies with, uh, with, with handling how that law was going to work. And those agencies have come up with some relatively rational rules and a process for uh, handling those, the, the, the restrictions that's been pretty quick. I mean, we'll see how it plays out in the real world, but in terms of rulemaking and, and agency responsiveness, it's, it's a pretty good story. Yeah, I agree. And the last word I would add on this is just that uh, because it is so new and because this, you know, these new exemptions have just been published and made public this week, 
uh, for anybody who's moving quickly on these issues and needs needs some guidance, FEMA and CBP in particular have been very responsive and very helpful getting getting various officials on the phone who are uh, who are noted in some of the the guidance and the in the register notices. Uh, not that I want to have them flooded with calls and emails, but um, you know we've certainly been in touch with them. I know a lot of people have so would encourage people to uh, to reach out if there's any ambiguities or questions just because obviously this stuff is this is important and it's not something that you want to have hung up sitting in uh, uh, you know at an airport uh, facility or a port waiting to be exported someplace that that really needs it so um, so with that I think we'll we'll leave uh, PPE uh, alone now and, and pivot away from COVID to um, a different topic, I wouldn't say necessarily a happier topic, but a different topic, which is Venezuela and in particular the new general license that was just issued this week. Well, in keeping with our themes, we have talked about Venezuela quite a bit uh, on the podcast and, and the increase in sanctions, uh, particularly sanctions targeting the Venezuelan oil industry. I think that the, the main goal of the maximum pressure strategy seems to be to cut off Venezuelan oil exports, particularly those oil exports that result in any sort of benefit to the Maduro regime. Uh, despite that, for, since the sanctions really ramped up and since uh, PDVSA, Petróleos de Venezuela, went on the SDN list back in, I believe it was January of 2019, the, the OFAC has created an exception that allowed uh, for certain joint ventures between companies with a U.S. nexus and uh, PDVSA to continue to operate uh, in certain ways in the region. And so that had resulted in something called General License 8, which I believe we've actually referenced on the program uh, in episode three, that, that kind of spelled out what certain companies, including Chevron and some others listed on the General License, could do in Venezuela. And it, it was a lot. It was basically if the contracts were in effect before PDVSA was designated, the companies could take all sorts of actions uh, to maintain and, and really carry out and effectuate those co contracts uh, it, 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 and any actions ordinarily incident to the carrying out of those contracts until recently. So that, those general licenses were all time limited. Uh, there was one that came into effect, I, I believe it was in January was the- Last the one was in January. Period. Yeah, the last, last one was, was in January. January. So we had one in January. January 17th, that was pretty broad, uh, and that expired April 22nd. Um, so it was just about to expire, and on April 21st, OFAC renewed the general license eight, uh, 8F is the renewal, but it is substantially less broad than the other ones, and really is, is designed to wind down. as a Drastically to narrowed, I think, is probably the best way to put it. And so before, it was all transactions ordinarily incident to contracts that were in effect when PDVSA was designated. Now, it's all transactions that are ordinarily incident and necessary to the limited maintenance of essential operations, contracts, or other agreements that are for the safety or preservation of assets in Venezuela, involve PDVSA or any entity in which PDVSA owns a 50% or more interest, and were in effect prior to July 29. So it's essentially uh, essential operations, and they have to be for safety and preservation. Yeah, and later on in the in, later on in the general license, they make very clear that what is not authorized is drilling, lifting, or processing of petroleum. So right. that is that is game. That's basically game over for any kind of 
uh, operations that were ongoing in, in Venezuela for any right. of these entities. And, and even that expires December 1st, 2020. So that even that is only six months now, it could be renewed, but, but it is a wind down and only essential operations license as opposed to as long as your contract was in place before January 2019, you can continue to operate on it. Right. Yeah, I think that I think the biggest things are, are, are this. So, like we said, it's a drastic narrowing of the general license. It's essentially the, the sort of the death knell, at least for now, of any continued business uh, for Chevron or these other entities in Venezuela. Um, and it's again it's as tim said it's for literally safety and asset preservation those are sort of the two bases that are cited as what's what's permissible essentially in terms of uh, continuity of operations for the next seven plus months um when we talked about this back in uh february i, I think the the if i recall the the context there was there had been some reporting and some noise that um, the U.S. government was ready, was ready to shut down this general license, and they were ready to say, okay, Chevron's going to have to stop operating down there, and we're going to get rid of this general license. What it, what it seems has happened, and this is, this is in some, I believe Reuters had this in some of their reporting. They were one of the first to report on this. This, this is a bit of a compromise, right, because there's, there's a seven-month wind-down period, which is a little strange because yeah, that's, that's a very long, long, it's a long time. Um, it's not immediate. It's not 30 days or 60 days, which is pretty typical for, for some of these. Um, and, you know, as we discussed on the most recent episode or the last couple of episodes, there's a lot going on with respect to Venezuela at the moment. There's the, you know, there's the plan, the transition plan that the U S is backing and the sanctions relief that would go along with that. Now, as we said at the time that we discussed that originally, it's hard to say that we think that has a great chance of really moving forward in any meaningful way in the near future, especially in an election year and with the, the coronavirus pandemic and all the rest of it. But uh, it does strike me that with a seven-month window until this general license expires, that there's at least the chance that there could be some material change in what's happening with respect to Venezuela, what's happening with respect to the Maduro regime, the, uh, the Guaido regime talks about a transition government um, and, and many other factors, right? So a lot could happen in the seven months. So we'll have to see what, what happens. But I think that the, certainly the way it's being reported now um, is that this is, this is basically the end, and this is the U.S. kind of choking off this another valuable revenue stream that remains for the Maduro regime after a lot of you know consideration about that, and that sort of plays into the broader strategy that we've been talking about, which is maximum pressure, even if this is potentially going to be harmful to some U.S. interests and is going to potentially kind of eliminate one of the last meaningful kind of uh, footholds that a, that a big U.S. company had in Venezuela, uh, at least for the time being, it was apparently deemed to be um, necessary to sort of apply that additional pressure and to hopefully end up in the situation that the, the White House and the administration is hoping, which is that, you know, Maduro is either, either comes to the, his, he and his people come to the table to talk about this transition government, or, you know, perhaps he's, he's, he's captured, <laughs> On the on the outstanding warrant for his arrest, 
with regard to the narco trafficking or or something big happens in the next you know six months or so. Yeah, I mean, this has all the appearances of an end game type measure yes. where you're essentially trying to get to checkmate, uh, but you're not quite there yet because as a practical matter, and I think we talked about this back in episode five. So you have these joint ventures between Western companies, including U.S. companies and PETAVASA to help develop the Venezuelan oil fields. These companies, these Western companies own parts of the oil fields. And if, if, if they abandon those, those oil fields, if they're forced to abandon them by the sanctions, PETAVASA is just going to take the oil field and it's going to figure out a way to develop its own oil field. And so you essentially you're, 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 you're seeding the turf to PETAVASA if this turns into a long-term standoff. In the short term, it puts pressure on, on PETAVASA, it puts pressure on Maduro, it cuts off the spigots, they need to make a move. But if they, they survive in the long run, you've actually given them more assets rather than fewer. Um, and that doesn't seem like a, a, a good strategy if you're really trying to make them suffer. In the short term, it'll give them a lot of pain. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, that's just back to um, what we said a, a few minutes ago, sort of safety and preservation of assets, right? That That's kind of what's still permissible. So I, it's hard to say. And I mean, there's so many things to balance here in terms of what that really means for the sort of operational folks on the ground from these companies. And, and it's incredibly you know, this is, this is a situation that's obviously incredibly fraught and incredibly difficult to navigate and personal and physical safety is, is a big issue that's in play with all of these uh, situations down in Venezuela at the moment, but um, not to mention the virus on top of it, right? So uh, a lot of complexity to manage, a lot of, a lot of moving parts here, but in any event, another important move, I think, to your point on sort of the chessboard and, and the, the end game that the U.S. is trying to play in terms of choking off another valuable revenue stream for Maduro and his, and his, uh, and his folks. And, and so we'll see how it plays out. But, but I think that is, this is one that will, will clearly be um, worth tracking. And, and over the course of the next seven months, I'm sure we will be coming back to it at some point. Um, so with that, let's let's go to our last uh, sort of major topic for the day, which is another. Um, this is another OFAC and others in the U.S. government apparently having time to sort of clear out the backlog of their homework assignments. Um, there was so this is sort of now we're going to pivot to North Korea and we're going to talk about two two uh, items that have been published since in the last couple of weeks. So the, the first being um, North Korean cyber guidance, which was actually a joint uh, product that was put out by the State Department, uh, Treasury, Homeland Security, and FBI. Um, and it's, a, it's an interesting piece of work product. And then separately is the UN report from the panel of experts relating to North Korean, essentially the North Korean uh, sanctions evasion uh, in the maritime space and the finance space sort of across the board and all of the activities and all of the evidence that's been collected on those efforts over the over the past year plus, and so starting with, so I'll start with the the cyber advisory for a moment, and then I'll I'll flip to Tim to talk more about the UN report. But the cyber advisory is almost in the way that um, the humanitarian assistance fact sheet is. I mean, there's there's not a lot of there's not really any new news here. It's just sort of an interesting collection of uh, information and facts that uh, to me is 
clearly meant to be, this is going to a global non-US audience in large part. Um, and it's, it's sort of laying out the case for um, all of the bad acts and the malign activity that the North Korean uh, regime has been sort of responsible for in terms of malicious cyber behavior and hacking activities. There's a list of attributed uh, cyber, malicious cyber activities that the North Koreans have been involved with. Um, there's uh, some talk about some of their, you know, sort of compliance and other um, cyber best practices that people should be aware of to sort of combat these types of efforts. Encouragement to go to come to the U.S. authorities if there are signals that people see of this type of activity. There's a, a pretty lengthy section that reminds everybody that if you're involved in materially assisting any of these actors or helping them evade sanctions, that you yourself could be subject to sanctions and, and significant and, and even criminal penalties in the U.S. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit of a hodgepodge uh, of different uh, kind of perspectives and information um, on the North Korean cyber threat generally, I would say, um, with, again, kind of, and, and there are a few matters in here that are cited that we've talked about in recent episodes uh, relating to some of the cryptocurrency um, sort of heists and shenanigans that the North Korean cyber actors have been up to. Uh, and things relating to other finance, to financial institutions and, and other things of that sort. So I think it's really a, it's an effort to sort of cast in one place a powerful message about the threat that this really, um, they, these actors present. And I would say that in the U.S. view, the fact that this type of product is being put out there, um, on the cyber side of things, you know, it's sort of China, Russia, Iran, those are the those are kind of the traditional biggest threats that have been talked about for years. And North Korea increasingly has been sort of elevating in status just given the um, the sort of level of the activity they've been engaged in and some of the high profile uh, activities they've been engaged in, but it hasn't been uh, maybe as front and center on the radar. I mean, people know about uh, Sony Pictures and 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 that uh, that which was attributed to the North Koreans and which the, there was a criminal case related to that that was brought um, thereafter. Um, but, you know, perhaps not as much in the U.S. or in the global community. So I think that that's kind of the most meaningful thing. And I think linking this with the U.N. report, the it's it's it seemed likely to me that it was timed to coincide with the publication of the panel of experts report on North Korea to have kind of maximum impact and maximum visibility. And there's actually a link in the annex to the uh, cyber advisory to the UN report. And, and that sort of, and while the cyber advisory is, you know, 10 pages long or something, and, uh, and like I said, is not really a lot of new information. It's just all collected in one place. Um, the UN report is, is obviously quite extensive and, and, and is kind of linked explicitly to the, to the cyber advisory. So, um, I don't know what your what your thoughts are on that and what this all kind of foretells for uh, where North Korea's place is and in, in kind of the general kind of risk matrix of sanctions and, and cyber and other sort of nefarious activity that, that we see all the time. Yeah, I, I agree with you that it was, that the, the cyber report was geared towards a, an international audience. And I, I've continued to be impressed in, in many ways 
at the level of international consensus on, on this sanctions issue as, a pair, as opposed to, to many other sanctions issues. Um, the, you know, the UN report that you've been talking about, the UN uh, imposed a, a series of escalating sanctions against North Korea uh, because of its nuclear and ballistic missile programs and was able to get all members of the Security Council to go along with those sanctions. Uh, it, this was before the negotiations uh, developed between President Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un. And that it, when the UN establishes a sanctions program, it creates a panel of experts. The panel of experts does periodic reports on you know, whether there is sanctions compliance and whether or not the behavior that was designed to be deterred by the sanctions has actually been deterred by the sanctions. And so this was the, the panel of experts that, that oversees North Korea's most recent effort. They've, they've done a number of reports, but uh, this one I think was probably the most extensive one. And it documents in pretty extensive detail uh, the ways in which North Korea is continuing to violate sanctions through the, the imports of petroleum. There, there's, a, there's actually, it's allowed under the UN sanctions for them to Im import 500,000 barrels of petroleum products in, in a certain period. But they have, according to the UN, exceeded that level many times over. Uh, they've they've uh, also been, they've, there's limits on their exports under the UN sanctions and they had been exporting uh, apparently most heavily coal and sand uh, to various countries and importing luxury goods, which are also prohibited under the, under the UN sanctions. And so it, it documents all of these particular violations in, in pretty decent detail. What I think is most interesting on it, it, about this report is that really, I, I've read some of the prior reports and, and there's not a lot of controversy about them, but on this one, uh, the, both Russia and China objected in particular to the section of the report that dealt with the uh, oil sales to North Korea. And even in the summary, uh, I think insisted on a sentence that said Russia and China requested more conclusive evidence to make the judgment. And so, so essentially, there is some of this consensus appears to be breaking down, I think most notably because uh, a lot of the sanctions evasion that is documented in the report seems to be with either the implicit uh, participation of China or the explicit participation of China. You know, on the exports, China is the country often where the, the sand and the, and the coal are being exported. On the oil, a lot of the exports are coming either from China or through China. Since China doesn't have a lot of oil, I guess it's more through China. But, but I think that, um, you know, to me, the consensus that has kind of led to these sanctions and, and the way that there have been enforced until now is, is pretty interesting. And I think that the, the U.S. Um, report on cyber is kind of to, to get out there to the international audience, most of whom uh, is, is taking the North Korean threat seriously. But there's another aspect to this. This isn't getting any better. It's actually getting worse. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's right. I think the the sentence does sort of come jumping out at you about they Russia and China wanted more conclusive proof. That's just kind of, in a nutshell, I think talks speaks volumes about the fractured nature of geopolitics at the moment. So, um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. It is, um, it is a, uh, as Tim said, it's a tome. It is, it is the UN panel of experts report and uh, very detailed. Um, so for, for those who are, for those who are interested in learning more about the North Korean sort of threat generally and sanctions evasion techniques, I think the two, the advisory and the report together are, um, are a good starting place there. Uh, and, and so, 
uh, again, it just, uh, it, it was striking that these two things were kind of all coming out together and, and um, again, seemingly coincided to, to make kind of maximum visibility on, on this. Um, so I think with that, we'll, we'll, we'll conclude with sort of the main portion of, of the podcast for today. And uh, then we will now turn after a pretty sweet sound effect, which I will pause for to the lightning round. Uh, and with that, I will turn it over. Oh, Tim almost got hit by the lightning. He got out of the way, thankfully. Uh, so uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Tim to introduce our, our, first, uh, our first lightning topic of the day. All right. So this is going to be very fast because it is the lightning round. But the first lightning topic is uh, an enforcement action against the Industrial Bank of Korea. Uh, IBK entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with the uh, Southern District of New York New U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, it was a case that was also I really I think instigated by the uh, Attorney General's Office in the state of New York. And it started out, when you read the first part of the, the statement of facts that accompanies the deferred prosecution agreement in which IBK agreed to pay $86 million, it's really a discussion of a, about a lousy money laundering uh, compliance program. And you're starting to think, you know, how did this turn into a criminal case? But essentially, you had a compliance program for a pretty large bank that had branches in the United States that was manual. And was when it was audited by the New York regulators, it, it got failing grades for a number of years. And after these failing grades, it didn't really do anything to improve its compliance program. And after about a year or two after the failing grades, uh, a U.S. Uh, citizen named Kenneth Wong uh, worked with some Iranian groups uh, to essentially get a lot of money, about a billion dollars in transactions, out of the uh, out of the IBK accounts in Seoul that were, were being held there, um, they were they were the sort of accounts that are created through U.S. sanctions, where they're they're essentially monitored accounts that allow for uh, payment for certain goods for for tra trade between non-U.S. trade between uh, certain countries in Iran, and so. The, the IBK had set up an account that allowed for some sorts of Korean trade with, with Iran, but the account was very uh, restricted. And if you have a good compliance program, you'd be able to enforce those restrictions, but they did not. And so Mr. Wong working with the Iranians was able to get a, about a, a billion dollars out of the account before somebody in the compliance group at IBK discovered it. It, it took about five months for them discover, to discover it. Uh, once they did discover it, uh, if you read through the report, it's almost like a comedy of errors in trying to shut it down. Uh, ultimately, including you know the compliance people saying like OFAC is going to be really mad at us, mad at us for this. And in fact, when OFAC and and actually the New York regulators found out about it, they were they were pretty mad. And so so I think it's a good example of kind of. It, it, what can happen if you have both a bad compliance program, the regulators tell you to fix it, and you don't spend the resources to fix it, eventually you're going to have a big issue. And here, you know, they had a billion dollar issue that resulted in $86 million in, in penalties. Yeah, I think that just very quickly, I think that, you know, the, the underlying charge that's the basis for the DPA is actually a failure uh, on the AML side and a violation of the Bank Secrecy Act. But that failure led to exactly as Tim said, a billion dollars in US dollar transactions that violated 
the Iran sanctions. And so that is obviously a big deal. I think in addition, the one other, <laughs> the one other data point is in addition to the manual process, no automated screening, and there was, there was one, they know, there was one compliance officer that was based in New York, who was somebody that apparently had no prior experience and also uh, was kind of raising the alarm bell that, that this was a problem and, and this was inadequate and they needed more resources and they needed automated screening. And so in addition to the regulator, he, the, this internal compliance person was also sounding the alarm. And as we've seen in many prior enforcement actions, if your own compliance people are telling you to do something and you just ignore it, uh, that is a recipe for uh, disaster. And so I think that's, that's kind of another takeaway here. One, uh, one other last observation is this shows, I think, how um, AML compliance and sanctions compliance, these are things that are really uh, not quite one in the same, but they go together like peanut butter and jelly. I think you, if you're, if you're thinking of them separately, uh, I think that's a mistake. These are these considerations and the things that need to be done to ensure that uh, your entity, your bank, what have you, is not running afoul of these problems. They all they all go together. They need to be thought of holistically, in addition to other compliance considerations. Uh, and I think this is a, a good example of of that, and where those those things were not thought of, uh, sort of as as one. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, I think when you look at a criminal indictment now in the sanctions context, there's almost always a money laundering component to it. And so there's a, a, at least one or two money laundering charges. Sometimes it's the main charge. Often it is the charge that is designed to uh, allow for extradition because although many countries don't uh, adhere to US sanctions, particularly with respect to Iran, virtually all countries now have anti-money laundering laws that are similar to US laws. And so if there is an anti-money laundering charge, that will allow for extradition much easier. And so they really do, it, there really is almost no daylight between uh, what's required in the money laundering context in terms of compliance and what's required in the sanctions context in terms of compliance. Yeah, no, I think that's right. That's a good point. Uh, so with that, let's, uh, that, that's about as much as we can handle for lightning speed uh, on IBK. So let's move on now to number two, uh, item number two in the lightning round, which takes us to Cuba, and in particular to South Florida, where there was a, uh, an order last week in an, a couple of ongoing lawsuits that were brought under Title III of Helms-Burton. So we've touched on this briefly before, but for, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, just over a year ago, um, the Title III of Helms-Burton was activated uh, because uh, the, the president chose not to exercise waiver authority. And what that has allowed is for um, litigants to bring suit uh, against parties that have uh, been involved in using confiscated property that was seized under the Castro regime when they took over in uh, the late 50s, early 60s. And so um, this was literally one of the first, these are among the first lawsuits that were brought. I think they were brought the day uh, that um, the Title III kind of went into effect. Uh, and they were brought in federal district court in Southern, in Southern District of Florida against a number of cruise uh, ship companies that have um, routes that they uh, take down to Cuba and that they where they dock in um, ports in Havana and so 
the suits that were brought were brought by a company called Havana Docks Company, and they brought suits against Carnival and Norwegian and MSC and one or two other lines as well. And so the, the reason we bring this up is earlier this year, a couple of those suits were actually dismissed on a motion to dismiss. And <clears throat> so that obviously may not have signaled very well for the prospects that people were going to be able to, um, you know, we're talking now obviously 60 years after the confiscation occurred in most cases. And how how is it that people are going to be able to try to validate and bring uh, and litigate their, their right to potential compensation under these if, if uh, courts are going to say, well, but, you, but it was pursuant to a right that would have expired prior to uh, this date or that date and, and view it in a very limited way. And so that was essentially the basis for the motion to dismiss is that um, there was a property interest, there was a lease in place that would have expired at a certain time. I believe it was in the early 2000s and the court dismissed on that basis. So there was a motion to reconsideration filed and on reconsideration, the court basically acknowledged that they had taken too narrow a view of the property interest. And in, in any event that that was not a proper use of uh, its discretion or application of the law under the normal federal pleading standards for a motion to dismiss, which are very narrow. And, you, and for those who are not federal uh, litigators, you need to accept all well-pled facts as true, and, and that's how you decide whether a case proceeds or, or it gets kicked out of court at an early stage. And so the only real reason to bring this up, I think, is that these are these cases are really among the bellwether cases in these Title III Helms-Burton cases, these cases that were brought by Havana Docks down in, in Southern Florida. And so the fact that there are now these two cases against Norwegian Cruise Lines and MSC have now been um, reinstated, amended complaints have been filed, and the cases are going to move to discovery, um, you know, I think is significant. And, and so is, is these are among these are among cases that people have been watching in this space because they were the first. There's, again, there's, as I said, there's a couple of others, Carnival and some others that are still ongoing that are all bought, brought by the same plaintiffs. And so um, now that they're shifting into uh, discovery, it'll be interesting to see how they proceed. I would add as well, it'll be interesting to see if there were a change in the presidential administration, if Title III of Helms-Burton gets walked back and there's some attempt to try to reinstitute the waiver and to take these, take these types of suits off the table, that, that could really pre create some messiness uh, if that were to happen late, you know, let's say sometime in 2021 or, or thereafter. So just a couple of, couple of thoughts on that uh, that were prompted by this case. So it really is hard to predict what's going to happen with lawsuits that are designed to enforce 60-year-old Cuban law property rights in the courts of the United States, which I think is why every president until President Trump uh, stayed implementation of Title III because uh, it, it just created a- Too messy, too, too messy, yeah. Um, but so we could, we could talk a lot about that, but because it's the lightning round, I'm not. I'm just gonna say that it has been a very tough two months for the cruise lines. And yes. I wish them well. I, I, I hope this piece of news uh, is the last piece of bad news that they have to have for a while. Yeah, here, here to that. Uh, so with that, let's let's go to our final our final lightning round topic, which Tim's going to introduce now. So the final lightning round topic it, it arises from this Katzel law that we talk about relatively often on this uh, 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 
podcast. Certainly with one another, we talk about, we have talked about, about it way about too much. <laughs> countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, uh, uh, known among lay people and sanctions nerds alike as CATSA. It has one provision of CATSA, Section 231. Section 231 uh, imposes uh, or allows the president to impose sanctions. I think it actually compels the president to impose sanctions against uh, the, any anyone who is doing cer a certain amount of significant business with the Russian defense industry, uh, it's come up in the past with respect to Turkey purchasing weapons from the Russian defense industry, um, and most recently, uh, there there was a, an article and there have been a lot of reporting about uh, Iraq now. Uh, thinking about purchasing Russian weapons, the same sort of Russian weapons. Yes, for the S-400 missile missile defense system. Yes. It's a missile defense system purchased from the Russians, uh, and that would trigger automatic CATSA sanctions, or at least theoretically, against the Iraqi purchasers. This is the second time we've talked about uh, sanctions against our ally in Iraq. The previous uh, discussion was when President Trump threatened a new sanctions program against Iran because of their response to the Soleimani uh, killing. And so uh, Iraq is now again in the news, uh, potentially for uh, being sanctioned with respect to a purchase of Russian uh, defense equipment. And we'll see what happens with that. But I do think that uh, it, it is another example of Section 231 of CATSA having kind of a weird effect where we have allies, previously Turkey, now Iraq, uh, per potentially purchasing Russian defense items and getting sanctioned by the U.S. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Obviously, with Turkey, there's a lot of talk that Turkey has promised not to deploy them, and there's rumors of some discussions going on with the U.S. to, to potentially do something about that to avert the sanctions and, and potentially, I think, get access to other other types of uh, defense systems that maybe the U.S. might be able to supply. So, so yeah, this is a lot of uh, a lot of kind of back background political diplomatic drama going on. And and to Tim's point, I think you know on the very first episode of the podcast, we talked a lot about whether what the prospects really were that um, sanctions could be imposed on Iraq. Now there's um, you know noise that this could be another basis to do that, and and things are already a bit. Um, frayed after the Soleimani um, uh, episode. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see. And, and for people that are operating in the region, obviously, this is of high significance and, and will be something to, to keep an eye on here in the coming in the coming months. Yeah, uh, you know, you never know when the next ally is going to be sanctioned. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that. Yeah, I'm waiting. I'm still waiting on the the uh, sanctions, the Canadian sanctions, which I'm sure will be will be coming after it's just a matter of time yeah they're just the one 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 ill-placed tweet and that could result in sanctions for for all of canada but um so i think that's i think that's all we have for this time uh as we said uh please uh at the outset if you if you enjoyed the the podcast please uh subscribe give us a rating um again apple Podcasts. Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Overcast, YouTube, wherever you get your podcast, please check it out. Um, and then stay tuned uh, for the next one, where, as we said, our mystery guest, if we if if we can actually convince him to come on and, and get get a little bit of his time, uh, will be part of uh, what we're tentatively calling China Stravaganza. Uh, we we love the pithy titles here on Embargoed, so that's the plan for next time is China Stravaganza in two weeks. 
Uh, so stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, who who knows what's gonna who knows what's gonna happen in two weeks? Who knows if we're if we're um, here in two weeks? Yeah, we might all be living underground in two weeks, not even in our homes. Uh, and so, uh, in in any event, in all seriousness, though, to everybody, please uh, stay safe, stay well, stay home, and of course, stay sanctions free. And we will see you next time. And for those of you who made it to the end of the podcast, today's code word was OFAC. So every time we say OFAC in the podcast, you should have a Friday afternoon beverage of your choice. Yes, here, here to that. So uh, with that, thank, thank you all. Stay sanctions free and we'll see you next time. Thanks.